Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, this is Anita and this is Black Menopause and Beyond. I'm with Lucinda and this, this is quite an interesting topic for Black Menopause and Beyond because it talks about allyship. Lucinda, if you could um, introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do, that'd be great. Good morning. Um, yeah, I. it's hard to get a title actually on that. I am a menopause awareness advocate. I uh, essentially go into workspaces, go into private spaces to talk about menopause, what it is, how it affects people, what we can do about it. Raising that, that getting the menopause out of the silent taboo space it's been occupied, we've been in for way too long. And partly because it's through me so badly myself and I and ignorance was the problem more than anything else. But also because it seems ridiculous that it was ever not talked about. We learn so much from other people, but menopause just was a silent space of not knowing. So I talk about menopause uh, to anybody and everybody who's got a space for listening to that. And this opened up an area to me that was very new, which was that the differences culture has on our approaches to menopause and what we know about it when we get there and where we can go for the information and how that information is is filtered out through our, our families, our societies and our workspaces. So have as part of your job... Have you worked with different diverse communities then? Yes, and not not directly my own space. So I started off small by giving uh, menopause talks at local community level, and that would generally uh, be totally white groups. I live in a small village in Kent. It is very culturally undiverse. And so reaching out within my community was very much done through sort of coffee shops, people from gym memberships. And I don't think in the first five or six talks, there was anybody who wasn't white in the room at all. So I speak at community level. I also work for one of the larger menopause awareness providers. And through them, I'm quite often speaking to women in the workspace from all different cultural backgrounds. Now, the reason why um, why I'm having this podcast with Lucinda is because based on my experience that even though the conversation of black menopause or menopause with diverse communities need to be had, the reality is that the most, most people of color will be looked after by someone who's white. So understanding 
diversity from a black or person of color and a non-person of color perspective talk about menopause is really important to optimize on um, good menopause care but also to help the people who deliver services to us to cater to us if they don't know what we need and they don't understand what we're what we want they're not, they definitely won't cater for us. So that's the reason why this podcast is happening because I just want to maybe work towards lifting some barriers that are affecting healthcare um, between different communities. Now, Lucinda has sent me a list of things to talk about with massive topics. <laughs> so we're going to go through and we're going to do a brief response to all of them because each one deserves a dissertation. <laughs> and I know that we can't. And also I'm not um, an EDI, special. I'm not an e- um, equality specialist. Um, I will b- respond based from my experience as Anita and I will respond based on my experience as a community worker. Uh, so, And that's how I will respond. So somebody who works in the field may feel that, oh no, Anita's missed out this paper that was written by Fred seven years ago in America. And I just don't know it. <laughs> I just don't. So, And, and therefore also I'm, I will talk about it, looking at it through my eyes so some people may not necessarily agree with some of the statements i make but i'm I'm gonna do the best i can so we have a list of questions okay so just gonna give a bit of context on that the questions come up because anita and i were talking about this um before in a sort of pre-call on how hard it has been to find out more about menopause from a from a perspective of colour and cultural diversity. Because I am a white woman living in a predominantly white village, I work mostly from home. I don't have a lot of cultural diversity in my social group, just through endless sets of different circumstances. When I left work uh, a long time ago, it was in a almost entirely white company and have gone back into the workspace and found that lots of things have changed. But I am finding it hard to know where to get the information to fit in better and build my own picture on cultural difference and what that means specifically around menopause. One of the questions I have right at the very beginning, which is a huge question, as you said, is from my perspective, it's really hard to know when we're talking particularly about menopause, whether it is the colour of skin or the culture and the cultural heritage of the person that I'm speaking to that makes more difference around menopause. Because there are two really big elements there around how you treat somebody, how you get to know somebody around the culture versus the colour. And of course, they're interlinked. (laughs) I mean, they are are very, very, very much interlinked. Um, And I actually, (laughs) the the thing is, it is about having knowledge of both. So at the end of the day, as a black person, I can... I, I have my experience of menopause, but as a black person, because I'm in the menopause space, I'm also a community worker, I'm fully aware I'm Caribbean parentage. I totally understand a black person who is Muslim or a black person who comes from um, different parts of Africa have different cultural norms that differ to me because I'm in the Caribbean or Caribbean origin. And also I'm second generation. I was born in this country. So someone who's first generation born in, say, for instance, African culture, I have to understand the narratives and conversations around it. And I'll I'll give you an example. I don't think I've mentioned this to you because I haven't spoken to you for a bit, but I went to um, a conference 
in relation to my job about um, FGM. Yeah. And what I learned about F- something about FGM, which actually probably has an impact on engagement on menopause, is that women who have had um, their, genitalia, their genitalia kind of altered <laughs> um, very often suffer, suffer gynecological problems. And also, if you go to a GP or a doctor and they examine you down there and they see that you have got had FGM, automatically they have to legally trigger a safeguarding issue. Yeah. So they have to tell social services because a woman who's had FGM is more likely to be the perpetrator of a daughter who might have FGM. So because of that, women who have had FGM done on them, African women or um, certain parts of, um, of Asia, do not go to a doctor about that area at all. Because if they do, social services and the police will knock on their door and they will want to do an examination of their daughter and there is a chance their child will be taken from them. Now, that doesn't happen in the Caribbean at all. But I've learned that. That I, and I have spoken to certain women from different parts of Africa and they've complained about certain sy- symptoms which were alien to me. And then when I went to the FGM conference, when some of the speakers were talking about um, FGM, they sounded similar, some of the symptoms, if, if it's done really badly, to the conversations I've had with women before and I didn't know. And what I've recommended to them is to go to a gynecologist or go to a doctor, which clearly they're not going to go. Um, so so that does that help understand that it, it's very complex? And sometimes what people need to understand, if you're white, you can be German, you can be French, you can be Australian, you can be American, you know, you, you could be Polish and there are different languages, different accents, different cultures, all because I'm black doesn't mean that every black person is one group. We are, we, there are div- cultural divisions just as much as there are within white communities. Um, so I hope that addresses that question. It does, but it starts right into the next question. It actually goes back a question as well, which listening to, um, listening to a lot of podcasts, which I've done this year of, you know, yours included, and other black casts by um, women of colour talking about menopause and about their space. And some of them just, they're not even about menopause, they are just uh, women's podcasts. One of the questions that comes up at the beginning of nearly every episode, no matter who you are interviewing, I'll use you as an example, um, is where are you from? What's your heritage? And that's a question that comes up right at the beginning. And it is part of understanding who that person is. For example, as you said, are they... Um, from an African country, are they from a from a, um, a Caribbean country? Where you know, are they Asian? What what is their heritage? Comes into who they are, and it seems a very comfortable question for you to ask your guests, and they're very comfortable replying to it. But I would not be happy starting a conversation with "Where are you from?" because because of course, from a no, white person asking that question, it's you're the wrong not, question. Allowed. You're not allowed exactly. You can't. I shouldn't be asking that. But what I'm meaning to ask, and what I want to know is. Who are you? What's what's important in your life? Because I can see your skin colour, but that doesn't tell me who you are. Are you second generation? Are you first? Are you, where, you know, what's your 
cultural practices that affect your life today that might in turn have an influence on your menopause. And so there is no comfortable way, I don't think, for me to ask that question, apart from tell me about yourself. But I'm not necessarily asking, are you a mother or are you um, in a full-time career? I'm asking about your heritage. And that's a, I'm a little bit scared of asking that question, even though actually that's what I want to know so we can discover who you are. Ooh, this is a hard one, isn't it? Um, I mean, for me, I because I now have to put myself onto your side of the table to try and understand what what dialogue works and what dialogue doesn't. I mean, we, the question, the reason why the question "Where were you from?" is racist is because it's normally a conversation, a question that comes very early in a conversation, and that person is highlighting that person's ethnicity or division without getting to know them that's the reason why there's an issue so even though they can hear an english accent and they're i know um they're they're at a party yeah they haven't asked anyone else where they're from but they've asked that person so that's the reason why it's unhealthy because they're causing a racial division where it doesn't need to be i think um i think the best way for a non-person of color to ask a person of colour stuff around their heritage is to actually have a conversation with them so it's a series of questions you know um oh it's just really hard actually even i find it hard but i know it's a series of questions some people are showing interest in who you are and some people ask blank questions a blank question is unacceptable series of questions where you get to know someone you get to know where they come from and what they like what's what food do they eat you know asking someone what food do you like you know that might be an indicator and stuff and then once they say what food you like say for instance they say curry and I say oh what type of curry do you like Thai curry I said oh no I like Caribbean curry oh are you from the Caribbean and then you say oh yeah yeah my, my parents is from Jamaica my blah 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 and I say oh wow I mean something like that might be soft way and it's a conversation about that person as a whole it's not you're not necessarily just looking at them and causing a division um you're actually getting to know them it is i mean can you see a difference i can but i'm going back into um as you said straight up hi Anita, nice to meet you where are you from i can see why that is is immediately going <laughs> it translates in my own mind from what i have learned translates yeah. into um hello Anita I can see that your skin's not white where are you from which could be heard not meant but could be mm. heard in brackets and what are you doing here that is what I've the little bit of, of understanding I've had from somebody was mm. was that the in brackets that he would be hearing was and what are you doing here in England that yeah. was his subtext to the question but if if what you're actually asking is what is your cultural heritage? I'd love to know more about your, you know, your gorgeous dress sense or your fantastic skin or, or, or if we're talking about menopause, what's your upbringing been like around menopause? Yes. Then yes. it's a really different question. And it's hard to ask that question without worrying that somebody is hearing from their perspective in brackets, something insulting. I mean, the thing, the thing is, the world, everyone's different, isn't it? So when I hear the comment about uh, the question, where were you from? Uh, sorry. To me, what it's doing is highlighting this difference at a time yeah. when, why why are you highlighting the difference? I've just met you at a party. 
I haven't. I, I don't need. I'm talking to you as a human being. You're talking to me, and clearly, my color is something that you need to know straight away. You need to know a bit about it. So I don't necessarily see it as you shouldn't be here. I just think straight away, as part of my first part of the first impression to you, you have picked up difference. Um, you don't see us as as equal. And I've had I've had scenarios where I've been I've spoken to women who are the same age as me, we've got loads of things in common, and then they've come out with statements based on my ethnicity, um, and they've made used language language referring to my difference. Like, are people like you? I mean, I've had <laughs> I've had conversations like that. And the thing is, we've got on fine. We've, we've loads of things in common. We're having a laugh. We're having a joke. But that person hasn't seen me as someone like them. They've seen me like like people like somebody else. Um, and that's really rude. Um, but I don't necessarily, for me, always think, oh, what are you doing here? I just think, oh, you're already, you're, you're already causing a division. We have so many things in common, but you you can't see that. You see, I'm I'm different. Um, I think around diversity, around ethnicity, the person you're asking needs to know that the information you want from them is relevant to the conversation. Yeah, because sometimes you give somebody information and they arm and weaponize it against you. So that's why I think you do have to have dialogue, and it could be that the dialogue is. It can't be long-winded, you know. It's like, oh, what's your favourite food, as I said earlier? And then they make statements, you ask questions. And then when you start talking about favourite foods and things like that, that then relates to culture and and whatever. Um, and then, you know, you say, oh, I went on holiday there and I went to this island. Is, do, do you know about this island? Or or I've done a safari tour around Africa and I went, da-da-da-da-da, have you gone to that part of Africa? And stuff like that. Um but I think sometimes you have to be really conscious that you're you're talking to someone who's dangerous because because racism and racists are dangerous to people of color. They they can get people sacked. They can demonize us. They can belittle us. They can laugh at us. So when you're talking to someone who highlights your ethnicity when they don't need to, that triggers unsafe. That triggers potentially hostility, and that triggers someone who you need to be careful around. And that's where if you have dialogue, which shows an interest in them, and as part of that, you pick out where they come from, you're doing the opposite. You're showing an interest in who they are and you're wanting to get to know them as a person. Um, and you're, you're creating a relationship as part, of, as part of getting to know them. And I think they're more comfortable then. They will trust you. But no, just, someone just coming straight out and asking that question potentially could, could be terrible for you you know it sets you you on edge and i wouldn't i'd say ever start with somebody saying where where are you from except i would to another white person because you naturally where are you from might be where have you traveled from today Mm. but it might be that i can hear a scottish accent for example so oh where are you from meaning whereabouts in scotland does your accent come from Mm. which because it's the same color speaking to the same color is not a problem exactly the same way as when you're you start your podcast by asking your guests about their heritage you're doing so because you're asking them who who are you? Mm. you know, why are we talking? Why are we on a, a podcast called, called um, Black Menopause and Beyond? We need to identify the heritage because there are so many different um, places that people might mm. get their, their culture from. That the skin difference is very different to the cultural upbringing. Yeah, but also, really, can I, yeah. Also, can I say as well mm. that 
because of the complexity um, and because of cultural displacement, some people just identify black. They don't identify with with a heritage, a country. Um, so sometimes if I'm talking to somebody of mixed heritage, they identify as a person who's half black or black, yeah, but they don't necessarily pinpoint it to where they come from because there's there's been a separation culturally. So, so, um, and sometimes if you talk to third or fourth generation black person, their 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 response to life is being black. They don't have a connection to Jamaica or the Caribbean because it is their third or fourth generation. Yeah. Um. So that question to them actually might be uncomfortable for them because then it makes them feel like they don't know their heritage and that 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 can be uncomfortable. Because um, very often, if you're a person of colour and either for whatever reason, you're disconnected culturally from your original country when you're confronted about, oh, what foods do you like? Blah, 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 and whatever. Actually, that can trigger, that can be emotionally triggering if they have an issue with not knowing about um, the Caribbean, if not knowing about... um, Africa, if not knowing about, you know, wherever they come from. And it could be that if they're mixed heritage, say, for instance, they've never, ever grown up knowing their black side. They've, they, they, they lived with a white mother. Their father, say, for instance, doesn't talk about it or the father's not present. They don't know much about their, their, their heritage in relation to the black uh, family, um, but they know and they identify with black or mixed. So there's another element there that you all said. Yep. <laughs> <that's, okay. laughs> we always knew it was going to be a deep conversation, but taking it back, taking that um, back to a slightly simpler level, when it comes to menopause and men approach to menopause, it is our culture, our home culture, mm. for each one of us, that affects how we approach menopause. Now that might be having a house full of men, three brothers, uh, uh, and a mother you don't get on with, or an absent mother, and a father who you therefore don't talk about menopause with, or periods with, or whatever. Or you might be a woman of any colour who's got six sisters, and you all have a really good laugh together and talk about the nitty gritty. So that is our individual cultures. Mine, you know, mine, anybody else's. How we approach this stage of life will be affected by our upbringing, which is affected by our culture as well. So the openness, are, are you a chatty person? Are you a shy person? Are you embarrassed about your body? Are you from a religion that doesn't like you to talk about these things in public or in, to anybody? So how comfortable we are going to a doctor? Do we like the doctor? All of that will affect how we approach menopause. And on top of that, you have the layer of home culture as well, which is affected by the larger cultural heritage as well. So it's a very individual question on about approaching menopause is to... How have we got to this stage in life and what did we know when we got here? So so the question would be in, um, that's okay. <laughs> so the question is, with, with, we'll take it back to taking it back to menopause, that, that huge subject of, of cultural heritage. And as you said, some people's cultural heritage is entirely their hometown in England hmm. and their, their English grandparents in England. Um, and that has a sub level then that colour comes into it. Hmm. But when we're approaching menopause, each person's individual home culture is the starting point for mm. each person, which in turn is affected by our cultural, our grandparent level and our mm. cultural heritage from where, wherever we come from. 
Did we have a grandmother who talked about having hot flushes? Did we have a mother who spoke to us about periods and pregnancies? Do we come from a background where this is all very private and talking about it at all is going to be hard? Do we come from a home that we go to the doctors every time we get a sniffle or do we come from a home that we never go to the doctor mm. at all? And there, listen to some of these podcasts from, from women from all different parts of the world. There's a big difference in approach to going to Western medical care. Mm. Huge difference on, on fear factor, um, uh, the, the racism that comes into it, the access to good doctors. And that when you get to a doctor, the different approach from a white woman seeing probably a white doctor versus a woman from any other cultural heritage seeing a doctor who is very possibly younger and white at mm. this stage of life. It's a really different approach. And that is our, that's culture affecting our approach to going to the doctor as well as our home upbringing. Yes, I agree with that. I mean, I, I definitely agree that on a very, it's multi-layered, the conversation um, around menopause and engagement with the health sector. I think also, the, um, I personally feel this way and I could be wrong, but I've been in the community work for many, 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 many years. And I've always, well, not always, I very often work in what general spaces um, where I engage with people who are either experiencing obstacles or disadvantage. And my job, depending on the project, is to help them overcome and to signpost and be a problem solver. Yeah. Now, within my sector, I come across a high proportion of ethnic minority communities, even though it's not mentioned as part of my job. So it's not a black initiative or an, um, an Asian initiative. It's just an initiative where I have to go in and I have to help these different communities. My gut feeling based on my work experience is that there are a higher percentage of people of ethnic minorities who are experiencing disadvantage. That's why I see a high percentage. And I feel that even though there's cultural issues and there are family issues, there are also social issues which have an impact. And some of these social issues, you wouldn't think there's an impact. But actually, I think one thing we learned from COVID is that, you know, there was all kinds of things that can help affect health outcomes. So say for instance, poor housing, poor housing and employment, poor housing and um, educational problems, poor housing and health are strongly connected. Yeah. Um, every single person near enough that I encountered when there were issues around school, there were issues around gangs, there was issues around the, um, um, you know, education. Some of the people I've worked with, the conversation of housing was also mentioned. It was either overcrowded or inappropriate, or there was damp, um, or the landlord didn't maintain the house properly. The list could go on and on and on, or they had been kicked out. And I think that something like housing is should be the foundation of a of a happy home. And if that foundation is rocked and you're stuck in that home for years. Yeah, it can have a detrimental effect on all aspects of your life. So I think it's not just about cultural elements. Based on my work experience, social social influence has a major impact on the quality of everything. Um, even the quality of the school you go to um, can can affect um, where you. I mean, we know that where you live has an impact on where you go to school. And if you live in an area which has a history of bad housing then the chances are the school is also bad. There was a relationship. And I feel that ethnic minorities 
combined with cultural, but also combined with societal issues, they're more likely to just have a negative impact and you have to deal with those social issues. Yeah, it's, it's uh, well, definitely multi-layered yeah. way to break down. But, but if we're talking about menopause, it is always different for each person. Every single, every single one of us will go through it our own way. Mm. But understanding what somebody's issues to start with comes back to who are they? Who are, who are you? What, what is your upbringing? What is your, what's your, your social influences that have held you back or propelled you forward or made, you know, your privileges, your absolute lack of privileges? Where, where does that shape how you're going to be when you reach midlife? And where can you get help from? And how, who can you listen to to get help around menopause is a problem I come up with time and time again. And, and I never thought about cultural heritage and menopause until I went to a conference um, and a woman who I think was originally or family was from Pakistan, runs her own very successful financial sector company and stood up in a room full of 200 people and explained why talking about menopause was important because she came from a background that never spoke about periods or pregnancies or postnatal depression. And that was a light bulb moment for me going, really hadn't thought about then about the differences culture made to menopause, which of course, the more I research, the more I learn, the more I listen, makes me understand more social influences have an impact as well. It's it's not just education. It's about our entire society that shapes us the whole way around. Whether we feel positive or not changes how we will approach something and how positive we feel might come down to our housing, might come down to, might come down to our neighbourhood, it might come down to our school life, it might come down to how supported we are at work everything and that's why it's it's really important to know about cultural differences around menopause because they affect it's not just I don't mean our ethnicity I mean our, our culture of individuality affects everything that we do and yet we have to talk about something like menopause in general terms because there's a lot of general information that's relevant to everybody that then has to be segmentized for that individual to make it the best advice for them. Definitely. I mean, definitely, definitely. Understanding how diverse society is, but also from a cultural element as well, um, which you haven't really covered so much, it's is when you seek help as a person of colour, people's perception of you has an impact on the treatment you get. You know, I know a woman who is degree educated turns up at a doctor's and if the doctor is not necessarily forthcoming with regards to menopause, and even though things have changed a lot in the past five years, the reality is some doctors are still reluctant to engage in that conversation of menopause or not trained. Yeah. Um, they're more likely to respond more positively if a woman's raving on those books, um, menopause books, they're well-spoken and clearly they come across as a professional or um um, someone who is quite articulate, educated, and sometimes the same doctor in the same practice, somebody else can turn up and their perception culturally or educationally has an impact on how seriously, seriously and more proactive they treat that person. And I think it's not just about what comes from that person, it's also how society interacts with that person so I know as a black woman my experience probably is more likely to be different than say for instance an Asian woman because society views us differently so black women normally are considered to be strong black women and they they turn up and 
but they might, you know, express their concerns. And because the word strong and woman are together, society generally nurtures us less. Yeah, then we're less likely to our problems be taken seriously. They're less likely to empathise with our struggle. Um, whereas I think with Asian women, even though they they experience a lack of service, it's because they're considered to be quieter um, and more submissive. They're ignored, and especially if they turned up in their traditional clothes. Sometimes that can have an impact on how seriously their complaints are taken. And also, if the doctor is not culturally in tuned in understanding that they may not necessarily be open to certain things. So, so some traditional Muslim Asian women cannot turn up a, comp- a doctor's, uh, a man, and say, um, I have no libido. Just can't do it. So a trained doctor needs to have an understanding that some, I mean, some women who are, you know, white can't do that. It's, it, you know, it, they need to be more sensitive to the fact that they're talking about problems which culturally have great sensitivity. And if they're not trained, they're not skilled, or if they don't care, there's also that element, they're not going to be able to address the questions, uh, not be able to ask the questions they need to ask to get the right outcome. One of the things you said on one of your earlier podcasts, uh, which resonates actually as a theme through a lot of different areas I'm listening to, which is something you've just touched on. when on colour and being treated by doctors. When I first went to a doctor about menopause, my GP wasn't trained in menopause, didn't have the right conversations with with me about the right sorts of things. And I I felt I left not feeling very heard, um, not feeling that that, uh, uh, this particular doctor was was a man, that he knew anything about menopause and that he was wrong. So it took a bit of guts, but I made a second appointment and went back in again. And then a third appointment because the second GP also didn't know. And whilst I thought the GP didn't know very much and wasn't treating me properly um, and didn't know much about menopause and all of those things, I didn't have the colour or the racism element in that process. And listening to one of your podcasts uh, when you were talking about about going to the GP and not being heard, not being seen, was the first time I'd realised that colour affects how we are seen in a GP because if that experience had been yours, for example, you might have left going, I haven't been heard. Is it because of my colour or is it because the GP doesn't know anything? And that adds a whole extra layer. And then, as you just said, you know, going to the doctors with a chaperone, for example, to speak about something like libido is something that some women are never going to do. So they're not going to, they're all, they're four layers in that process behind where I'm just going, I need to see a different GP. I can have that conversation openly. Colour hasn't come into it, so I just need to see a different GP. And how hard it, much harder it becomes, depending on our personal heritages and our situations. But I've never thought about that before. Why would I have thought about that before? It had never been in my, you know, menopause in my state process, let alone going to the doctors from different perspectives. And uh, and that clearly is a. The more I listen, that is a really big problem. Yeah, going to a GP and being heard is a big problem around anything but yeah it's being heard being understood and also speaking to um some a health professional who's culturally competent to understand that they have to ask certain questions because that person will never never tell them yeah i mean if it could be that if you ask a certain woman who would never say it to you 
a question and say, are you struggling, struggling with your libido? They might just say one word. Yes, that's it. And therefore, you know, that is enough to influence how they're dealt with to, um, um, to give the right outcome. But the way things are done at the moment, if you don't say that, those are GPs are not culturally aware or not allowed to. So I, I hear um, if you're talking about li- the libido and you want testosterone, you have to say it. The doctor will never ask you about it. So I hear that a lot. So that means there are loads of women culturally who would never, ever talk about their libido and their sex um, sex lives to their GP and not being treated fairly or accurately or optimum, um, optimum because they won't use that language. There's no, there's no quick fix for that because until there, till there are more female doctors and more female doctors from a wide range of, of different cultural heritages and backgrounds, which will take forever to happen at the rate, no, the rate is going to be really hard always for some people, well, for, for us all to be treated equally within the medical profession because most women would rather go to a female doctor for something to do with their, with their genitalia. There are thankfully a lot more female GPs than there used to be, but it's still in most practices biased towards men versus women GPs. And then they, they are more likely to be working part time, so harder to get an appointment. And all of that cuts in at level one, just being a white woman wanting to see a female doctor down the layers again. It's there's no fix to our problem of getting to see a um, culturally aware, educated doctor if if actually gender is also a big barrier in that treatment process as well but also even though i do agree agree with you it does it is about um being more aware and, and it changes over time but also the decision makers with regards to prescribing things like tes- testosterone some, from what i understand sometimes there are a series of set questions you have to ask to influence the conclusion um and maybe the decision makers or maybe the people who I don't know, decide on these questions need to be kind of more conscious of culture. Um, so as a quest, as a standard question, ask about libido when a woman comes in to talk about their menopause yeah. rather than wait for her to, to mention it to you. I love that expression you just had culturally competent. Yeah. Um, that, and that is in itself what we're sort of half talking about how to become culturally competent. The starting mm. points on how do I get to be culturally competent? Where can I go for the information that I need? You know, it's it's that um, and having that time to do it. So if it's not on go back to GPs, trying to get all GPs up to having a good, wide cultural diversity understanding of the different types of questions and the different types of approaches, and even the how long it might have taken an individual to have the guts to come to the doctor in the first place. All of that is, you know, it's hard to teach people who are already busy without it being mandatory training, but it's necessary. Should have been done in the beginning, but Yeah, definitely. Hasn't been. Yeah. <laughs> but but I mean it, that that just builds another layer into the problem we've we've got anyway, that the medical care started with men studying men. Yes. And treating men. And yes. you know, slowly but surely we'll get there, but it's not going to be fast enough for people that are going through this now or even their children. Yes. Yeah. And and yeah and and I still believe that there's certain parts of the medical field that are just not engaging with diversity. They're not engaging at all. They don't get it. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I don't think they get it. Um, 
yeah, they just and also it's not just about the ethnicity; it's about women. I I still feel that it's yeah. I still feel that some parts of the medical field just don't get it. No, and and they're not going to. It's going to be the next generation coming through that might. Yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, but that, <laughs> that comes back down to it's our daughters rather than us that will. Yeah, that will hopefully benefit from that wider perspective on everything that we do. Yes. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, which goes on to question something you and I were talking about before we were recording, which is the thing to, no, not having to remember to think, but having my eyes opened to the difference that culture has on how we are treated around the medical profession or around, so taking the workplace out of this, but, but um, everybody in a room together. For some people, that conversation is, is perfectly okay in a, in a big open space. For others, having a conversation like that in a room with male colleagues is not comfortable. Yes. They don't want to be in a space that you're know, talking about uh, vaginal dryness, for example, in the workspace is not something mm. that is in everybody's comfort zone. Um, and e- even how to approach that sort of training is, is a hard to navigate. Easier on Zoom, of course, but um, yeah. but the face-to-face training, the, the sensitivity around the subject matter in itself is to be thought about so are you saying that sometimes you have to do menopause training with men and women in the same room yeah i mean maybe someone will disagree with me i think men do need to have a conversation on menopause yeah so what i would do is uh, and i have done sessions before where um i have because as you say some women are uncomfortable um, to have that conversation with their husband and then um, a complete stranger in the room but i suppose it depends on your aims and objectives what I find with regards to men, um, there's loads of questions that they just don't know um, about at all because they just don't know that area. But they live with a woman going through distress who probably doesn't know either. So I sometimes find that initially putting them all together, there are so many barriers which will stop questions. And therefore that actually stops that can have an impact on learning because they've got a question dying to ask, but they just don't feel comfortable either side because the the, the, the the opposite gender. But I think some of the sessions I've done, I've had men and women separately to begin with. So somebody else has taken the men, I've taken the women or, or I've got women to talk. So another woman to talk to them and then they bring them together. And then we have gen- a generic conversation. I found that that's been really helpful because the information they've learned in either group they then have created dialogue and conversations which can be addressed immediately after that male and female dialogue. But no, that's definitely going to stop loads of men and women um, talking. I mean, when I did a session where there were men talking about menopause, those things they asked about was how to look after their wives when their wives were suffering um, and they didn't know. And then all the men had different approaches. And I know that one particular man, he was kind of aggressive towards his wife because he was frustrated but when he actually listened to all the other men show empathy and sympathy and you know oh, I run the bath for my wife and stuff and I sometimes you know it's, it's hard for us so I just could do cooking or we get a takeaway nothing said it's just done and I find that that calms her down whereas this man he got aggravated by her anxiety and then it amplified her anxiety and it amplified his but when he once he listened to all the men he, after the session, he went home with his wife and they had a conversation and he realised, I've actually dealt with you wrong, haven't I? And she said, yes. 
And when he listened to the men, he just wouldn't listen to her. They'd said nothing different than she had said, but he just wouldn't listen. Um, But that's very common. It's the how to start the conversation about something you know nothing about. Yeah. And yeah, and that's that's where I was starting with when I started to realise that diversity matters around menopause is how to start that conversation when I know nothing about it. Um, I suppose you could say I'm a man approaching menopause with a menopausal partner, but but self-teaching of course comes into it, listening comes into it, hearing other people's stories, uh, taking a step back and considering what it's like to not be yourself, but to be somebody else. All of those things come into how can a man get menopause right and how can somebody else learn about some like learn about another person's experiences of what it's like to be them. And of course I'm always focused on menopause. So that comes into it. But it's um but sometimes we do we do joint sessions and it's the introductory level of knowledge rather than the in-depth and it's the starting of that conversation um and not everybody for a long time ever will be comfortable talking about menopause in public whether it's work or at home Mm. but getting that word used in the workspace getting it used in our society having it in the papers having on tv programs just normalizing it is a good place to start yeah, definitely. Because it, uh, I, it's so much better now than it was five years ago. Five years ago, it was, you said men, menopause, and literally the room was cleared. It was, it, it, I, I still remember that menopause, yeah. and people whispered menopause. Um, the first time I did a talk, the the feedback I got, which was a group of friends round the kitchen table. I'm not embarrassed now of the talk because it was the starting point, but but I'd found out about menopause and it was almost like a, this is a horror story I need to tell you all ladies. I need you to be aware of the horror story. Um, and the question that came up really at the end was, could you do this for our husbands? Can you run the session for our, for our men folk? Because I need them to know. Mm. We, we need them to know um, that it's not just, that it's not just me. Mm. Lots of us doing going through this. Um, and as you said, men learning from men about how to be empathetic around menopause. Great. Well, however they learn. Yes, true. However they learn. Yeah. It's um, yeah, I think it's it's quite often that comment. How do how do I get the people around me to understand about menopause so that I'm not doing this on my own? Definitely. Thank you for listening to the podcast. That was part one of allyship in the mental space. There are three other parts and part two will be released in a few days. So if you will, um, if you would like to follow and like my social media, as well as my, um, wherever you listen to my podcast, you'll be kept up to date with what is going to happen over the next few days with regards to the further episodes of allyship in the menopause space. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.